Whoa. All right. Conventional wisdom says that if you tear down a wall, all will be well, right? If you tear it down, it gets better. It's, it's, it's the reminiscence. Some of us are old enough to remember uh, in 1987, uh, you know, uh, President Reagan standing in, in uh, West, or West Germany saying, tear down this wall, speaking to uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. And the idea is, is that if the walls come down, uh, then things get better. But that's not necessarily the case because the wall came down, but I think when walls come down, however you frame that in as physical walls or physical barriers, um, it always reveals other things. Other things start to show up. Other barriers, other insecurities, other hostilities have a way of emerging even though barriers come down. Uh, if you look back just in recent history, you look at the Arab Spring that occurred during 2011 and everyone started cheering about the Arab Spring and the rule of the, the, this kind of totalitarian rule, this oppressive rule and dictatorships in the Middle East are being overthrown and everyone starts cheering like it's going to be a great new day except it leaves this huge power vacuum and, and, and that power vacuum you kind of have to wait to see what happens. Well, what happened was a lot, a lot of civil war that broke out. Countries like Libya and Syria and, and Egypt and, and Tunisia. And, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, wait, wait. But, but the wall came down. And you're like, yeah, I know. But it, it didn't necessarily mean it got better. Or if you, if you think about other times, the end of communism in Europe brought, brought like this, oh, great. Now it's this new day, except what happened in, in Europe, the, the former Yugoslavians started with their own genocide and their own attack of each other and you had Croats and Serbs and I remember spending a couple of, uh, I was on two different trips in Croatia during the Bosnian conflict and thinking what happened here? This was, this, this is where the Olympics were in Sarajevo and we were down in southern area of Split and it was, tourism was the biggest industry. I was like what could go wrong here except, except that the communism came down and all of a sudden people wanted to do some ethnic cleansing. If you look at uh, back in the, again, in the 90s, uh, end of the Belgian occupation, you had the, Hutu, uh, the Hutus rise to power in the span of roughly 100 days, approximately a million Tutsis were slaughtered. Just because a wall comes down doesn't make for a better future. Even in our own country, you have the Civil War, and then as the Civil War ends, you have this divide that exists even today because all of a sudden the, the Civil War ends, the Emancipation Proclamation is signed, but then all of a sudden you get Jim Crow laws and then you get exclusive neighborhoods where some people can't live and then you get segregation of schools and all of a sudden you're like, wait, 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 it's supposed to be a better day except that it's not. So there's two truths that we find about the human condition and that is this, we all want peace. We all want accessibility. We all want opportunity. We all aspire and des desire that. And if you grew up as an American, you look at that as sort of a God-given right, except that it's not necessarily uh, a given right, depending on where you live. But in America, we, we kind of assume that. And then the, the second thing that's, the idea is that we all want walls that are broken down so that we can have the equal access, the equal opportunities. But then the second thing is that walls are simply inevitable. And it's because of our own human condition. 
And so this is where the Bible becomes so, so relevant to speak to the human condition uh, that I think we all experience. We all experience and have to deal with the condition of fear, um, anxiety, we, we deal with offense, we deal with trust issues and anger issues, we all contend with authority issues, uh, but maybe we can summarize this all in one world that the word that the Bible really speaks to, and it's this, alienation. We, we all struggle with or contend with the idea of being alienated, and, and that's kind of a two-way street, but um, I think uh, when, when we look at every culture every life stage, uh, there's always going to be an in-group. And there's always sort of an outsider group. There's, there's always people going to be on the inside and other people on the outside looking in. And if you think about every stage of life, this has always been true. Elementary school, there was kind of this group that you may or may not, for, for us it was like, I, I didn't want to be the last one picked for kickball. I mean, there was an in-group that were always getting picked first. Or when you get to middle school, oh my gosh, it's like, what if you're not wearing the right shoes or have the right label? Or if you come out of the cafeteria line with a tray and you're like, where do I belong? I mean, think about that, what, what it was like emotionally, but then you get into maybe into your workplace and all of a sudden you're the new hire but doors get closed. Even though you're, you're given access and you're given a job, it's like you're not on senior leadership. You're not on the executive team. And there's always this striving feeling like I'm in or I'm out. This is the human condition and it doesn't matter if you're in middle school or if you're in middle ages. Uh, it, it, it's part of the human condition. It's, it's a refugee seeking asylum coming to a country but not necessarily feeling welcome in that country because somehow the, the, the American dream was reserved for my grandparents but it doesn't exist today. Walls. I'm sure that in the course of my talking about walls, there's going to be maybe some like situations that might even come to mind where you're feeling maybe like you're on the outside looking in and it's going to want to maybe stir up some of the offense of that. And I would just kind of push the pause button here because I think walls or barriers are, are always a two-way street with every person. There's, there's been times in my life, and maybe I would just ask you to think the same way. Think of a time in your life when you felt like you were the outsider, the one looking in, and you, if, you, if you could just be there, whatever there was, at that table, in that boardroom, with that zip code, with that title, whatever, but you're the, you're the outside looking in. But then can you also think of maybe a time in your life where you realized you were on the inside and people were trying to fit in with your group or, or, or your station in life? Have you ever been in that situation where you're like, I see, I, I see what's happening now. I, I see them and maybe you're annoyed by it or maybe you're sympathetic to it. But I think that's the human condition is that we wrestle with this alienation. Well, so the question is, is what does the gospel have to say to this human condition? And I think it has to say lots. And a couple of weeks ago, we jumped into this really fascinating, though really dense book of Ephesians. It's Paul writing to this multi-ethnic community, and he's not rebuking them. It's the one, his only letter where he's not correcting something that they're doing. In fact, he's saying, good job. And so the question is, is what are they doing that's so well? Integrating. 
They're not anywhere in in a Jewish province, though there are some Jews that have migrated there. It's a Gentile province. And there's like these house churches, these tribes around. And and they're meeting together for fellowship and for study of the word and for worship and they're serving. And so Paul writes about good reports that he's hearing about how they're coming together. And so this is where we pick up in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, Last week we looked at, uh, well, Two weeks ago, we looked at the idea that Paul prays this prayer for them. Even though they're doing well, he prays for them. Because what we learn is that we need prayer. We need to be praying, not just as crisis management, not just in need, but we need to be praying in success. Because success, blessing, prosperity, has a way of dulling our sensitivities. Maybe like we don't need God quite that much or we miss opportunity. Then then he writes to them, and he doesn't pray for any of his circumstances. This is what's so amazing. He himself is in jail. This is one of his four prison letters. He's writing for jail, doesn't say anything about his imprisonment or that he needs help or food. He writes to them, affirming them, and doesn't pray for any of their circumstances. He says, in the midst of whatever you're going through, pray for wisdom and revelation. Holy cow. You mean... I shouldn't just be praying to get over this. You mean I shouldn't just be praying for God to solve this, fix this, heal this, do this? He's like, nope. In the midst of it, I pray that you would have wisdom and revelation, which I hope that informs some of how you begin to articulate prayers to God and even an expectation of God. So last week we looked at this idea because it's this... uh, kind of uh, town or city that's built on one of the seven great wonders of the world, the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis. And he, and he describes that um, it is by grace that you've been saved, for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so he paints this picture of God's grace describing that even though everyone's making statues, ironwork, sculpture, paintings, potteries. There's this whole community of artisans that are making images of God. He writes about a God and he describes grace of a God who makes art out of people, not people making art out of God. And he's like, and you're created to do good works. Okay, so there's a lot here. But here he starts and he calls them out to make sure they understand their place. Now, what's super important is that I have a temptation whenever I read scripture to read myself into this protagonist role, not the antagonist. So I want to, I want to out all of you. You are one of the people that he's writing to and you're one of the outsiders looking in. Now I know you're American. I know you've had access to free worship and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is, is what Paul's writing is to non-Jewish people who were once alienated from God and he's saying It is by God's grace that you've been given access to all that we have. And so I have to put on a new lens when I read this and go, even though I've grown up in church my whole life, even though I've been loved my whole life, even though I've been kind of exposed my whole life to healthy faith expression, I'm still being grafted in. This is still an adoption situation for me. And he picks up in in verse 11. And he says, therefore, remember that you formerly, you, are, you who are Gentiles by birth uh, uh, are called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves circumcision. In other words, 
the in-group and the out-group, the circumcised group and the uncircumcised group. And if you want to get into the whole nature of circumcision, go back to the Genesis 25 account where God is making this covenant with Abraham. But uh, that's for another day. But he simply says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. He is talking to you and me. Unless you carry some kind of Hebrew blood that I do not know about, but I'm just making an assumption here. We all fall into a Gentile category, so I have to listen to that saying, wait, 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 I've always been... I had the opportunity, not always really wanted it, sometimes felt obligated, sometimes felt forced, but it's, all, no, no, no. He's talking to me and he's saying, you were once alienated from God. And so he starts to unpack. And the, the three things that I want to talk about is, is simply what we were, what Christ did, and who we've become. And so maybe you want to just follow along. I'd, I'd encourage you to just be taking notes as we go. Um, and, and I would simply say that Paul shifts here from speaking to salvation in terms of individualized salvation. You yourself are saved. Therefore, you get fire insurance. You don't have to go to hell. No, no, no. We're not talking about that. We're talking about being set free, being delivered, having a life given to something that's everlasting. But now he's not talking about a personal relationship. He's talking about a corporate relationship. He's talking about a group of people that are able to experience salvation. Now, in our individualized culture, we always think of it as about me. And he's thinking about all of them. And so this is the shift. Specifically, Jews and Gentiles, previously very hostile, now come together as what? One body. See, what we're part of is that one body of Christ. There's not like, you know, 10,000 churches in Austin. There's, there's one church. Uh, And so we have this picture and he says this alienated relationship with God and chosen people uh, because apart from Christ you were excluded. So let me just paint a picture for what it was like uh, the temple that sat on a plateau in Jerusalem. It sat above on a plateau and so just for starters you had to ascend you had to go up to get to the temple. So immediately when we start talking and this is sort of relevant just barely, barriers to entry, feeling like an outsider, and some people are welcoming you, and then other people don't want you, right? But you've got to ascend to the temple, and temple represented the place that you had communion with God. How you got your worship on wasn't quiet time or having home fellowship. It was in the house of God, because the presence of God dwelt there. So you had to climb the hill just to get up there, because there's always that feeling of someone looking down you've been there before but once you got to the temple you couldn't just walk in and go oh is this where the worship is no there was like five courts there was the holy of holies where only one person the high priest was allowed only once a year and they would tie a rope around his ankle because if he was to keel over they couldn't go in and get him so they would have to drag him out This is the Holy of Holies. We are not given access. On the next round would be for the priests. The third court would be for the Israelite, comma, men. On the fourth court, it would be for the Israelite women. And then, you know what happened on the fifth court? 19 steps below, you and me, Gentiles. That's 
That was access to God. Oh, by the way, what happened on the cross? The veil was torn. There's this picture where the, it's a slight detail, but what it means is you and I all have now access to God, which means intimacy with our Heavenly Father is actually possible. I mean, this is, this is kind of earth-shattering stuff here. But what, what we were, and I would just encourage you to underline these things. He says, formerly excluded. You were formerly excluded. Maybe you today, right now, feel excluded from something. Maybe you're trying to apply for a job and feeling like I'm not getting very far. Maybe you're bidding on a house and you feel like you keep getting outbid. Or maybe it's um, you get passed over for a promotion. Uh, maybe it's uh, trying to find your people and your, your community, as it were. But the idea is, in Christ, spiritually speaking, you were once formally excluded. Now, one of the huge things that Paul, or Paul is writing in this whole book is an identity book. And one thing that we need to be able to see, so whenever we see that phrase, and I've encouraged you to read and study this, highlight, I've gone through multiple Bibles, just marking them up, wherever I say in Christ, in him, with him, Paul is making an identity statement. You might feel average, you might feel overweight, you might feel left out, you might feel whatever you might feel that sort of starts to inform the meaning and, of your life, and he's like, no, no, no. But in Christ, you're this. So he's painting a picture of this new identity. And he says, you were once formally excluded, but that's not who you are anymore. Because guess what? These Gentiles knew what it was like to go to Jer Jerusalem. If you read Book of Acts and, you know, they have these missionary journeys, Paul comes back and they're like, hey, Paul, you keep telling people that they're good if they don't get circumcised, but we're people of the circumcision. And all the men are like, yeah, we are. Like, dang, could we stop instituting that with conversion? Because couldn't it be like circumcision of the heart, like a figurative thing, but stop making grown men go through this literal circumcision? And he's like, yeah, that's what it should be because our hearts are being laid bare before God. And so there's, there's this discrimination, this barrier, this wall that says they're not quite holy enough. They're not quite, like, they don't keep the law as good of, as us. We are the circumcised group. I think there's a lot of people that are spiritually curious, but afraid to step into church because they don't feel quite good enough. Or when someone feels like, oh, my marriage is struggling, so once I can get my act together, we'll come back to church. That this, this is a real thing. That somehow we have to kind of make ourselves more presentable, more lovable, and then we can join church. Mm -mm. We were all formally excluded. And take it a step further to make it more of a geopolitical statement, we were all once immigrants and aliens to this land. And unless you're like possessing Native American, you know, ancestry, then, you know, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> but the Bible acknowledges alienation as a human condition. And while we've all been on both sides of it, uh, I think we've all been on the side of we're, you know, being invited in and maybe not making room. Um, and this is why human reconciliation is always short-lived. So think about 
World War I, what was it known as? The war to end all wars, except that what did it create is a huge vacuum uh, of, of power. Uh, there was all these economic sanctions, uh, barriers, if you will, that were built up towards Germany. And so they got alienated. And so they got kind of, they, 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 they started kind of dealing with something. It gave rise to this, you know, insecure, psychotic psychopath who decides, no, it's about a superior race. And if you have physical defects, you're not good enough. And so we opened up all these gas chambers. And then World War II happened. And that was, should have been the war to end all wars, except that it wasn't. And then after World War II, what happened is, is you've got countries with a lot of industrialized nations and a lot of not good distribution of wealth. And so you've got huge immigration problems post-World War II, where some countries are putting up huge barriers and some are getting overrun. And so what we're left with is this huge disparity. And global immigration becomes a problem because people are simply trying to build walls, camps, ghettos. See, we all long for peace, but the problem is not, uh, is, is not simply political or it's not legal. Uh, it's, it's spiritual, and we're all first alienated from God and then, um, and then each other. And Jesus was the one who says, till the end of all times, you will hear uh, about wars and rumors of wars. Human reconciliation doesn't last. Does anyone get excited when you hear the idea of a ceasefire? I'm like, for how long? Till someone looks at you the wrong way? And so we have this condition of barriers and walls. Uh, and, and so, you know, let's get rid of Saddam Hussein. And then he falls. And then all of a sudden, it's like all these Muslims start killing each other because they're like following the wrong caliphate. And they're looking at each other like, well, no, it came out of this lineage. It came out of this line. And, and so you've got kind of the civil war within the Muslim community. And then um, on and on. Lots of examples, right? So let me move on through this passage. So what Christ did, and then what we have is what Christ did, beginning in, in verse 13. But now, whew, that's good news, but now, just, I mean, you know it's getting better right now. In Christ Jesus, oh, there's that word, like in Christ, like now it's a new identity statement. You who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. So in Christ, two things happen. You're brought near and you're brought peace. So now what does that begin to look like? Um, and he, he says, who was made the, made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Okay, come on now. He came, I know this is a lot, I mean, it's super dense, but he says he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. In other words, Christ came for the Jew and the Gentile. He came for all people. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. 
See, what happens is the blood of Christ, and I almost wish we were taking communion tonight because it would be such an elegant way to tie this all together. The blood of Christ actually lowers the dividing walls because his death levels the field and the, 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 at the foot of the cross is a very even playing field. And so there's no more status. There's no more... Uh, no more in and out. There's no more lovable or unlovable. There's no more circumcised or uncircumcised. We all then get to drink from the same cup. That's what he was doing when bringing them all together and then sending them back. And he says, he is our peace. Not just the absence of conflict or sameness of views, but the presence of Christ where we know the ending. I always get concerned when churches start to make, have a very similar makeup where it looks like, oh, everyone there went to college, or everyone there can make, you know, over $75,000 a year. Everyone there, no, no, no. You have to understand what he did. Uh, and and th this isn't just about sameness. In the end, when we see the prophetic, how this thing um, transpires, whether you read end of Revelation or whether you read Isaiah. Isaiah 2 has some powerful words about how this thing looks in the end because of the blood of Christ. Isaiah 2 says this. This is such a beautiful picture for people want to know where, where this thing's headed. It says, come, let us, many people will say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so many will walk in their paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle the disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will the train for war anymore. So all of your M16s and all of your fighter jets and all of your rifles and all of your well, we can actually convert those into tools of agriculture to bless everyone. Instead of taking life, we're going to feed. That's the picture of reconciliation that comes spiritually. And it's such a hopeful one. It's such a beautiful one. It kind of want to makes me want to sign up. Uh, and so if, if we look just a little further, um, let me just kind of close out with verse 19 through 21. It says... Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, there's an identity statement coming, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. See, because of his identity as God's son and Messiah, we now have the identity of God's adopted sons and daughters. And by shedding his blood, he's made a way for us to come into family of God. And because we know Jesus' identity, we can know our identity. And it's a spiritual one. And there's an inheritance that comes with it. And, and so there's this idea that we go through a second birth. 
our first birth is to a human father uh, and, and into a natural family. But then we go through a, a, a second birth, a spiritual birth into a supernatural family to our father in heaven. That's why we use so much language that Mission Hills is trying to be an extended family of faith so that we're part of God's household. See, the household, though, is supposed to be light. The church is supposed to be uniquely different. And sometimes I think it is. Sometimes I think we get it right. But church is uh, supposed to produce something in us. See, we don't want to grow a a church with merely people who like what we like or afford what we afford or 20% of the people do 80% of the serving or 20% of the people do 80% of the giving. This is a family affair. And the church struggles always, always when it's consumer driven. Uh, But the church thrives under adversity. Last week when we got to have, you know, 25 Burmese here, we got to have a glimpse of that. Um, I've recommended this book to several of you, but I just want to read a couple of things. It's a book by Francis Chan, who started a church in 1994, and it grew to 5,000 people, and he started a college with it, uh, and, and long short of it is he felt like he was the problem. He couldn't figure out Um, what to do with it because all these people had been taught to like um, something and then it felt like you're not doing enough in fact one person even called him out I feel like you did a bait and switch you taught me to love something like coming to worship and coming to teach and and praise God but you're telling me I'm not doing enough so he finally said uh I gotta go and so this church called Cornerstone Church in Simi Valley is still going and it's still going well as far as I know But he's talking about what's crippling the church is consumerism. So let me read you just something just to kind of whet your appetite. You may not even like it. Uh, I, I get a little convicted by it. But he says, there's a simple exercise that I walk through with church leaders. First, I have them list all the things that people would expect from their church. They obviously list... uh, they, they usually list obvious things like a really good service, strong age-specific ministries, certain volume, length, uh, style of singing, a well-communicated sermon, conveniences such as parking, clean church building, coffee, childcare, etc. Then I ask them to list the commands God gave the church in Scripture. And usually they mention things like love one another as I have loved you, visit the orphans and the widows in the affliction, make disciples of all nations, bear one another's burdens. And then I ask them, and, and I would say, Francis Chan has a way of being in your face, confrontational. Um, but then I ask them, what would uh, upset their people more? If the church didn't provide the things from the first list, or if the church didn't obey the commands in the second list? I'm like, holy moly, you're not even being nice. But then I like, and I actually, I mean, I marked it up and uh, it was a convicting read for me, especially because we're trying to do church differently. What he ended up doing is moving to San Francisco uh, and starting a house church movement where now they have 40 house churches, all led by tribe leaders. Uh, Everyone has a day job, but they have 10 to 20 people that they meet with regularly, uh, weekly, uh, and then are committed to studying the word and and breaking bread and prayer uh, for one another. And there's like 40 pastors, uh, and it, it's, it's kind of a neat thing. And they're, they, they're, they have no rent, and they, ha- they pay no salaries. Uh, it's, it's a really unique model. But he started traveling a lot. And I want to read you a couple accounts for what it means to be in the church, because the church is supposed to be light. We're supposed to be uniquely set apart. We're not just talking about individual salvation. We're talking about a corporate expression 
of our salvation so that other people benefit from what we have received in being grafted in. He says, a believer from a house church in Iran explained that people who want to join the church have to sign a written statement agreeing to lose their property, be thrown in jail, and be martyred for their faith. Many Christians are arrested in Iran and either executed or imprisoned for years. Fellowship looks a lot different when the church consists of those who have a biblical understanding of Christianity. Um, And he says, when a friend of mine came back from visiting the church in Iraq, I asked him what the biggest difference was between our church and the church in Iraq. And he says, what we call sanctification, they call a prerequisite. In other words, we act as though surrender is this lifelong process where we slowly decide to give, uh, decide whether or not to give up certain things to God. Meanwhile, believers in Iraq teach the way Jesus taught. They're required to count the cost, surrender everything up front. Otherwise, they can't join the church. And, and then he cites statistics saying it might be one of the, and it's hard to mark, fastest growing churches in the world. Why? Because the church always thrives under persecution. And God, I, I, I pray for protection, like, but it kind of lights a fire under us. Then he gives a, a picture, uh, he, he tells the story of what it was like in the church in, in, in China, which is just huge, but it's, it's had to meet underground. And he says, I remember speaking to a man who leads a whole network of churches in China. He told me how there was a period of time where the, there was a little more religious freedom and he decided to test the waters and he built the church above ground just to see how well it would go. His church grew to a couple thousand. Then the government went in and sure enough, shut it down and hauled him and other pastors away. In hindsight, he told me he was actually really grateful because it brought them back to the DNA again. He told me that they had started to lose it with their change of structure. By having a large service, people began coming just to listen to a sermon. And once they grew accustomed to merely sitting and listening, he had a hard time stirring people to action. It was almost as if the Lord was using them to being torn down again to rebuild them even stronger. And then he explained, really to be a member of our church, there's five pillars. And the five pillars were sort of I could track with them at first, but imagine if, as we think about what it means to be a member, here's the five pillars of their membership. He began naming the pillars, and the first one was, number one, it was just a deep commitment to prayer. And I've been trying to talk more about prayer and trying to encourage prayer, and and I think we all think of prayer, but do we pray with a way that requires faith, or do we pray safety valve prayers? It's a kind of a convicting thought for me. Do I just bring my shopping list to God going, help, bless, need this? Or is it, God, I pray for this. And it requires actually a modicum of faith. He says, the second is a commitment to the word of God. There was something about their time together that they were going to be in deep study independently as well as corporately. Third, it would be sharing the gospel. That you didn't come back to church without actually having presented the hope that you have in some way. And then here's the fourth and the fifth one was, okay, this is not America. Uh, This is nothing that I've grown up with. But he says the fourth was a regular expectation of miracles. Do we pray, believe, and expect miracles? Do we enter into miracle territory? And then the fifth one was this, um, is that you would embrace suffering for the glory of Christ they created an expectation that if you're going to follow, the the idea was it was countercultural. 
It wasn't be a jerk for Jesus. But the idea was that if you follow the kingdom of heaven, it does not coincide with the kingdom on earth. Radical generosity or, or hospitality or, or compassion always feels like a quid pro quo, a this for that. But he says, in the kingdom of God, our love is for God. And he says, we're not waiting for a, a sort of attention, recognition, attaboy. It's no, no, no. My love for God allows me to do this. It was such a powerful picture. And I thought, whoa, that's serious business. But that's a little bit more of the church as we see in Ephesus and the church that I think Jesus had anticipated. So let me just finish with this. I just want to give you some ways to pray. And I'm going to ask you to just pull out your phone, pull out something to take notes with, because this is the way that I would just encourage you to be praying for us, Mission Hills. And let me just say this caveat. Sometimes you're the answer. When you have a need, whenever you have a concern, whenever you see something, a gap, always start with, I might be the answer. But um, the first thing I would just say is, I want to pray that we would cross social divides, that we would be a church that would not just be um, uh, geographically based, but that we would have a large reach into and you've seen since day one we've had kind of this commitment to the margins even commitment before we thought we could afford it financially to have a good neighbor fund and to be setting aside money to invest um, but it's the idea that we're going to practice compassion um, and we're going to practice learning from the least of these last week we had a joint worship service with immigrants who can i just tell you they're used to three hours of worship we went really long because we went an hour and a half and normally we're like hour and 15 minutes on a long night. Uh, and they were just getting started. But I was like, uh, yeah, well, I'm done. Like, we're done. We're on America time, not Burma time, right? But um, there is so much we can learn from people who have grown up in an underground churched environment because their faith is a totally different animal. The second thing is, and this is simply a prayer that Jesus prayed, labors for the harvest. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And I tell you what, when we have churches that are driven by consumption, and one of my big concerns with mega churches is that you're, it's too easy to, it's, it's, it's like a spiritual enabler. You can just come and go and never be noticed, come and go without any accountability, come and go and, and never feel like they don't, they need you. And I'm saying, no, 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 faith requires that we labor in the harvest, and then uh, thirdly, I would say family leadership or apprenticing. Uh, we're praying in some areas uh, for God to open doors. We're praying for a lead discipler, someone who could champion the cause of apprenticing within our children's ministry, within, uh, our, within starting a youth tribe. Um, but we're, we're praying for the right people to, to do that. But it also involves, you know, we want to we wanna add a third class so that we, we get a little more age specific with our kids. And so we're going to need more apprenticing volunteers. And then fourthly, I would just say, pray for salvation. I don't know if you pray for people's salvation. Um, sometimes it's easy to just think, well, they're nice. Oh, they're good. Or they're spiritual. And I'm saying, no, 
We need to pray for prodigals to come home. We need to pray for people to be found. We need to pray for the healing of their souls. I think this is really important and part of why we exist. Uh, and so salvation prayers are super important. So then the question is, is who are the people that God has already given you favor with? Pray for them. Pray that they might have a healed, restored, reconciled relationship. But from, uh, as much as I would pray for people who don't know Christ or are far from Christ, I think that there's a lot of Christians that need to be saved because they're so afraid. They're so afraid of people not like them. And, and I, I feel like there, there needs to be a healing work there. So that, that's, that's uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, I would encourage you, again, just to be studying that as we go. Uh, I think there's a real encouraging word, but there's a challenging word for us to respond. But let's just close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness to us. We thank you for your generosity to us. We thank you that uh, we found ourselves as outsiders looking in, but through Christ we have been welcomed in. The veil's been torn, intimacy is available, healing, reconciliation. We know where this story ends and it's, it's with abundance. And so I pray that your kingdom come and your will be done would be done in our hearts, would be done in our minds, that we would see faith as, as a chance uh, to express our and declare our, uh, your worth in our lives. And so I pray that we would be found as good stewards of our influence, of our resources, of our time, um, and, and that we would leverage them for your glory, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.